Ovid's Flea by P.J. Edgel. Episode 6. Kimberly. What Kimberly had missed most about her life once Viola had gone were the rituals, and yet here was one returned without preambles if those ten years had never happened. After a job, they'd meet back at the townhouse and talk while one showered or took a bath, and then switch. Then in big fluffy robes, they would return to the kitchen and drink more wine and eat. Kimberly found herself sitting cross-legged on the floor of the bathroom while Viola took a luxurious bath, sipping wine. They sat for a time in silence. Kimberly felt the years of pain starting to seep out of her friend. She stayed silent not wanting to interrupt the process. Viola finished soaking and stood up in the tub. Kimberly handed her a bath sheet. Viola thanked her and said, So when did you start fucking with your face? I thought we had a pack. Faces were off limits. Kimberly gasped. Viola's question took her breath away. So sure was she in the fact that lost in her own story, Viola hadn't noticed her face. She began to hyperventilate, and Viola found a paper bag in the vanity where they always had been. They sat on the floor, Viola's arm around Kimberly's shoulder as she breathed into the bag. No, no, you're fine. <sighs> Kimberly sobbed, breathing deeper into the bag. <sighs> I, I had some work done, and it changed me. It's just no one said it out loud. Well, Tommy tried to, but... And though it's not as horrific as what you've been through, I'm devastated. I look in the mirror and I see a monster. The dreams are back. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know what I'm doing with the business or my life. I don't even work that much anymore. I didn't need to do my face. I just wanted to feel again. I just thought if I looked like a younger version of myself, I'd feel like myself again. But I don't. If anything, I'll feel like an alien. You're far from an alien. My God, you're still the most beautiful and exotic woman I've seen. Why? You've been in podunk shit, Sippy. I hardly find that comforting. She threw the bag aside. You're fucking lying and you know it. She spat the words, the anger and self-loathing bumping the surface of her skin. For God's sake, don't go soft on me now. Kimberly changed the subject. I saw Mark Harrington tonight. Remember him? Of course. You were in love with him. And don't deny it. You saw him? I thought he lived in Michigan. Wait, he said something? No, no. To everything you're saying. Except, yes, I saw him. But he didn't need to say anything. I could see by the look in his eyes. He dismissed me. Still fucked me and paid a lot for it, but dismissed me. Kimmy, why do you care he dismissed you? You were doing a job, remember? The anger that came up so quickly lashed out at Viola, relieved to have an outlet. Shut up, Vi. I'm not in love with him anymore. But is it so much to want to feel? To want to just be able to convincingly pretend with a John? He was the only one I ever fell for. The breathing became hot again, and she stuffed her face back into the bag. (sighs) Finally, Kimberly said, I'm sorry for snapping. 
I, there's just been no one, oh Vi. All this has been buried. There's just been no one. And you're the only one who gets me, got me. Don't you understand? I just wanted to feel like the old days. Viola continued to stroke her friend's back. I understand more than you know how good it would feel to have the past back. See, this is what I've missed. It's just with the dreams back. The Johnny dreams, and this time they're worse. Now he's the plastic surgeon. He wants to give me a new heart. It makes me hate. I hate. Kimberly was scared of the words stuck in her throat, which was rapidly closing. She tried again. I hate. I hate what I've become. There it was, out in the world, resting on the bathroom steam, the truth of her life. Despite the questionable success, the money, and living the punchline of her delicious joke, Kimberly hated what she'd become. Mark. Sunday. Mark woke up before his wake-up call, excited for the day. He was satisfied with the weekend so far, Plus, he'd had the bonus of ending the Jesse situation rather neatly. So now, it was about the other reason for his trip. Cars. He was showered and downstairs quickly without so much as a glance at Jesse's door. He grabbed a quick breakfast at the bar, checked out, and was waiting for Carlos to pick him up by 8.25. The ritual with Carlos was that Carlos would pick him up in one of his vintage Jaguars and Mark would drive it back up to Carlos's place in Westchester as Carlos sat in the passenger seat smoking a big cigar. It was one of the rare moments where Mark felt purely happy. Even the birth of his children had come with some pangs of annoyance at the thought that there were now more people who would believe he owed them something. He knew he owed Jesse nothing, but he also knew that as people begin to fall for you, that meant they had expectations. He had felt Jesse's expectations beginning to form. If it wasn't so pathetic, it would be amusing. He didn't understand where Jesse... And then he stopped the thought. Do I honestly care, he thought further. He gave himself a little shake, as if to remove the last remnants of something unpleasant that had stuck to him. With that shake, Jesse was gone from his head, replaced by the thought of the day ahead, cigars and cars. It was 8.50 before Carlos pulled up outside of the hotel, but Mark didn't recognize him. And it wasn't until Carlos rolled down the window of a Lincoln Navigator that he realized it was Carlos, waving madly at him. Mark made his way slowly over to the navigator, confused by this break from their ritual. As he got closer, he noticed Carlos was unshaven and looked haggard. Unfamiliar with the feeling of extreme disappointment, he reluctantly climbed into the navigator. The only word that Mark could think of to describe Carlos was damp. That was the only word that kept resounding in his head. Damp. Carlos tried to be jocular. Mark Harrington, how are you doing there, son? Son? Carlos had never called him son. This was a total stranger. As Carlos had pulled out and headed toward the West Side Highway, he started talking. It was so good of you to call. I really needed a visit. With everything that's gone on, if you don't mind, we won't go to the house. My wife's not herself these days. None of us are. It's been such a nightmare. It was good of you to call. Now Carlos was really damp. 
as Mark saw a tear trickle down his face. What the hell was going on? Where was a jag? Where was Carlos? He looked over the driver's seat, where Carlos should have been. Instead sat a rumpled, crumpled man crying. The man was now speaking. Money doesn't buy happiness, son. The last few months have proven that to me. In 20 years, he had never heard those words uttered from Carlos's lips. This was a man who loved money. This was Mark's mentor. He thought quickly, what could he do to get out? They had just got on the West Side Highway. They were in the 50s. Then the 70s came and went. He didn't want to get past the George Washington Bridge. Then he would be stuck with the damp, emotional, now-sniffling Carlos. You know what? Why don't we just... Grab a bite uptown, Mark said. Carlos loved the idea and said, Thank you, son. Again with the sun. I think that's just what I need. But would you mind if we maybe drove through Central Park? It will help me clear my head. Maybe you could drive? <sighs> a drive through Central Park? Mark thought he might lose his mind. <sighs> Carlos maneuvered the car off the highway and stopped so they could switch seats. Carlos got out of the car, and Mark noticed his pants had stains on them. His jacket was rumpled, and his hair longer than Mark had ever seen, and uncombed. Again, he knew he'd never met this man. Mark maneuvered the car back out into traffic and drove across 96th Street to Central Park West. Driving made Mark feel a little better. At least he was in control. Carlos continued to sniffle as he stared out the window, commented on inane things he saw in the park, animals, people, trees. When he saw a young couple with a baby, he burst into tears and buried his face again. Mark thought he would go insane. He felt the humidity inside the car rise. He felt like he was suffocating. Who cries like this? I know I've seen it before, he thought. Oh, wait, Julia. She's cried like this. Uh, but I don't remember why. At least on Julia, it was somewhat attractive. But even then, at times, it turned his stomach. He'd never seen a man cry like this. His disgust was rising like bile in the back of his throat. Mark couldn't speak or even imagine what to say. He didn't want to further embarrass Carlos. Carlos was doing a fine job on his own. Viola. When she and Kimberly had eventually gone to bed, Viola insisted that she stay in the room with Julian, as she didn't want him to wake and not know where he was. He'd been through enough trauma, she figured, but then again, so had she. She tried to sleep, but with everything that had happened, her mind wouldn't rest. Her mother was dead. She knew she'd have to deal with it at some point, but she decided now wasn't the time. She kept wondering how she'd missed the phone calls where her mother had been ill and died, but she realized by that point he had forbade her to answer the phone and threatened her the one time she had attempted to. Now she knew why. She had become a prisoner and she supposed he had fed off the power of withholding knowledge. That had been rock bottom. She had gone under in the sea of misery. She'd only come back up because of Julian. 
It was around that time that his specialness had broken through her misery. Ma, you awake? Julian sounded hoarse. She rolled over and stared into his eyes. Hi, honey. How are you feeling? Sore. She stroked his temple. Just remind me where we are again. I mean, I remember parts of yesterday, but this peacefulness feels surreal. Yes, it is surreal, isn't it? Did you think we were dead? It crossed my mind. Viola laughed. No, my love. We are very much alive, and it will only get better. She believed it, despite everything she was feeling. Optimism came from her mother, and a fresh wave of grief washed over her. It would have been good if she'd been there to heal them. Her. Mother's healed. A mother's touch was healing. Viola stroked Julian's face. She hoped she could heal him. Heal the pain of his abandonment. He obviously had something about himself he believed in. She was impressed that he had stood up to his father and fought. Physically fought a man twice his size for what he believed in, namely himself. She admired him, saying out loud, I'm proud of you. Julian. Julian wasn't necessarily surprised by his mother's sudden declaration, but what took him aback was its intensity and how the words and her eyes burned into his soul. She had always been his mother to him, having very little recollection of the mother who disappeared when he was four. He couldn't imagine what life would have been like without Viola. And now he couldn't imagine for completely different reasons what life was going to be like with her, here in New York. This taste and sensation of freedom was, despite all its loveliness, a little frightening. He read in World War II history how starved prisoners let out of the concentration camps had gorged themselves to death with their first meals. He wondered if sudden freedom and the loss of daily fear could kill a person. When he'd woken up, he had been honestly confused. Between the pillar-top mattress and the clouds painted on the ceiling, he seriously had considered the possibility of heaven. The day before was a blur, but snippets had come back. They'd started in Knoxville, which meant his old life was already two days behind him. As he remembered the various parts of the past two days, the crushing blow Viola had endured hit him. Julian had felt her pain as if a spear had gone through both of them. He owed her everything. He didn't know what he would do if he'd lost her, so he couldn't imagine what she was going through. They got up, and Viola handed him a man's robe to put on. They went downstairs, and she made breakfast. He watched her move about the kitchen with ease. She looked more at ease than he'd ever seen her in their former home, but then again he felt more at ease himself. Something from his life had been removed, a burden he didn't even know he'd been carrying, and it felt wonderful to be free of it. 
He felt free like he could do and be anything. This sense washed over him as he sat at the kitchen table watching Viola work around it. He suddenly became aware of the fact that he was grinning. Ma, this is the most, I just, I think I'm happy. And then he started to laugh at how stupid that sentence sounded. Ma, this is crazy. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I never knew you could feel this way. That you were allowed to in life. You know, with Redfield, I got glimpses, but in hindsight, it never felt permanent. This feels like a new, different life. We're going to make this work, right, Ma? We're going to be happy? It was almost a rhetorical question. He knew that if he ever had a chance for happiness in his life, he was now in a position to take it. His mother's friend, Kimberly, stumbled into the kitchen. When did you learn to cook? She asked Viola. I did learn something in the South, you know. Viola smiled and winked at Julian. Ma's a great cook. Though he knew they were joking, he felt protective of Viola. Then Kimberly looked at Julian for the first time. Viola, how are you feeling? He stood up on instinct and said, Fine, thank you, ma'am. Kimberly looked startled and mumbled. Coffee? And she sat down. Julian poured her a cup, as his mother had warned him that Kimberly needed caffeine before she could be civil. It reminded him of his father, so he wanted to make sure she was happy quickly. There was something about her that made him surprised she was his mother's friend. They were so different. Viola had a natural beauty and an earthiness to her. While to him, Kimberly seemed brittle. He didn't know what it was that made her come off that way. She was kind enough to him. He remembered at the wedding ten years prior, she had been crying a lot, but very loving to him. She seemed like a different person now. She definitely looked different. He remembered her as pretty and soft. But now, though still pretty, she reminded him of a mannequin from a department store. With enough coffee in her, Kimberly seemed to soften and become a little more human. She made the suggestion that they all go to the parade. What parade? Julian asked. It's the Pride Parade. Gay pride. It's quite the spectacle, and in some circles, quite the social event. Your mother and I used to throw one hell of a party years ago. One of the houses we owned had the greatest roof, and you could see the parade. Those were good times, Vi. They certainly were. Viola reached over and grabbed Julian's hand. Remember when we ran into a gay pride parade in Atlanta? I think you were 13. And he was cursing up a storm when traffic was stopped and some big old man dressed as a showgirl came up to the car. Julian remembered all too well. 
his automatic reactions of fear and shame subsided with the realization that he didn't have to hide his curiosity of that spectacle. He started to laugh in his relief. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that, Ma. Blocked it out because he got so ugly. That sure made me decide I wasn't ever coming out of that closet. No, ma'am. <laughs> Rather suspected I was different. I loved that parade up until that point. Not that I wanted to dress in woman's clothing, but everyone seemed so free. We were never free, Ma. But we are now. Ma'am, will you excuse me? I'd like to get cleaned up. Suddenly he was hit with the desire to be alone and soak up all these thoughts. He went upstairs and found everything in the cupboards as he had been instructed, including more men's robes. Annie. Annie had been woken up by a wailing sound, her daughter's dramatic precursor to a full-on tantrum. She raised a head off her arms, wiping drool and relaxed for a minute, knowing Jesse would get her, but then suddenly realizing he was away. She jumped up and yelled, I'm in the studio, sweetie, quickly grabbing a robe and covering herself and then the painting with the cloth, all the while shouting, I'm coming, honey. She managed to stash the pot before her daughter came bursting in and threw herself into Annie's torso. Mommy, I found you. Did you think I was lost? I'm right here, Annie cooed. Where's daddy? Her daughter's lips trembled. Annie thought, we're all lost without him. Jesse's girls. He's away, sweetie. You know that. He'll be home tonight. Do you want to make a special picture for him while I make breakfast? She took her daughter downstairs, her son emerging sleepily, awake from all the noise his sister made. Annie settled the kids at the table with crayons, paper, trucks, and various toys. She made a breakfast of blueberry pancakes, creating faces with the blueberries, thinking Jesse would be pleased. Viola. Viola was overwhelmed by Julian's memories and revelations. She'd laughed to hide her tears at hearing him speak so freely. The fact that he had hidden his sexuality had never been discussed. His sexuality had been respectfully ignored. Like the drunk in the family, it had been wrapped in shame. To hear him talk about it with such freedom made the entire past ten years worth every bit of pain. He would adjust to his new life. He would make it. She felt her shoulders relax a little and realized she had been holding her breath, breathing just enough to survive. The fact that Julian so vividly remembered the gay pride parade in Atlanta so many years before made her realize that he was more ready and comfortable to take on a real life in New York than she had thought. When she realized they had arrived on Pride Weekend, she felt an inexplicable sense of completion, like life had come full circle. Here she had worried about the spectacle of the parade being too much for him, thinking that he had only come out to himself recently. But she was wrong. He was ready. Maybe even more ready than she was to move on with life. Viola came out of her thoughts to see Kimberly watching her. You really are, Mother, Kimberly said. 
Stop worrying. He's going to be fine. Your mother didn't shield you from anything, and you didn't hide anything from her. This is the life you led, and you brought him back here for a reason. He's 18. He can make his own decisions on what he sees. Let's just go and be proud. Besides, there are a ton of people who will have heart attacks when you walk through the door of Tommy's place. Viola smiled. She'd forgotten the concept of friends. She had friends here. Kimberly continued. This is going to be brilliant because I'm going to steal his brunch surprises here by walking in with you. Viola felt a shift in the abyss as if something had moved and began to patch up the hole. Julian. Julian let the water from the rain shower wash over him. He'd never taken a shower in such a luxurious bathroom. It really felt like rain cascading down his body, and it made him feel unfettered. Gay. Pride. Parade. In all his years, Julian never expected to hear those words together and have anything to do with him. He'd been hiding his entire life. Even his time with Redfield had been hidden and forbidden. Up until two days ago, he still half suspected that he would have died in Mississippi, a strange old man, or next to a woman as miserable as he was. There had been no options. While his mother and Kimberly got ready, he decided to go out and check out the neighborhood. The first step out of the townhouse felt like dipping his foot into a delicious pool. New York was strange, and the sheer amount of people walking around seemed bigger than his high school. Though he wanted to, he didn't stray far, just a few houses on either side. Coming from rural Mississippi, New York seemed bizarre. All these houses right up on top of each other, no breathing room in between. But as he watched people, no one seemed to mind. In fact, they seemed to enjoy it, feeding off the energy. He wanted to feast at the same table as all these folks. He sat on the steps, soaking it all in, and felt like a kid in a candy store, feasting his eyes on all the lovely treats. Yes, the general populace seemed glamorous and beautiful, but the men were unbelievable. He had never dared look at any man openly, and now they were looking at him, and he looked back without shame. Viola and Kimberly eventually emerged from the townhouse, interrupting his visual feast. They emerged from the lower entrance under the stairs. Viola in clothes he'd never seen, seemed a part of this strange, glamorous world. They set off, and it felt like the beginning of the biggest adventure of his life. As they left the townhouse, he noticed the sign on the front, Kimberly Simon, Psychotherapy. So Miss Kimberly, you are in the same profession as my mother? You're a psychologist too? He noticed that Kimberly looked at his mother and without looking at him, she said, Yes, we were uh, business partners. We started the practice together. Julian started to ask more questions, 
but his mother grabbed his face and pointed it towards some drag queens tottering in six-inch stilettos. <laughs> Julian laughed, feeling another layer of shackles fall to the ground. <laughs> Viola and Kimberly laughed, too. Julian hadn't heard Viola laugh in years, he was sure. It had been years since he'd laughed as well. He knew he was naive, but it felt delicious. Everything was new. Everything was beautiful and in living color. A man came up and stuck a rainbow flag in Julian's back pocket and patted his butt. Julian swung round and the man grinned and winked. Kimberly laughed and Viola said, Welcome to Pride, sweetheart. Julian felt like dancing. Mark. The drive through Central Park had gone on for over an hour and a half. Mark found himself in the unfamiliar territory of being somewhere he didn't want to be. He was truly at a loss as to what to do with this person who bore some physical resemblance to his friend and mentor, Carlos, but mentally and emotionally, this was not Carlos. Carlos had been the first man of a similar heritage to Marx who had made something of himself. Coming from the poor, mainly Latino, southwest part of Detroit, Mark had grown up surrounded by factory workers who told him that even though he looked more like their boss's kid, he would never be anything more than they were. He'd proved them wrong and never spoken to a single person from his childhood again, including his parents. But when Carlos had entered his life, he'd learned to be proud of his ancestral heritage, if not his immediate family. When Carlos had asked him about his parents, he told them they died in a car crash. It wasn't exactly a lie. There had been a car crash, and that was the last he'd heard of them. So, in essence, they were dead to him. To Carlos, Mark was the son he'd never had. They eventually arrived at the restaurant, and the father reached for the son's hand as Mark ordered extra spicy Bloody Mary's coffee and impatiently made two selections off the menu for brunch. Mark looked down at Carlos's hand on his, and then up at his face. Carlos was crying. Mark knew he had to get out of there. Carlos was blubbering, trying to say something. It was three months to the day of the accident when you called. We just can't believe that Lola and the baby are gone. Some 17-year-old kid gets drunk, drives his car, and kills my daughter and granddaughter. I wanted to kill him myself. I just don't know how we're going to go on without Lola. Carlos took his napkin and buried his face in it. Mark looked at the top of Carlos's head and had remembered that he'd had sex with Lola. Was it the night before her wedding or his? He was trying to remember when Carlos's hand grabbed his again. Promise me you never drive drunk. Promise me. Carlos's eyes were wild. Mark promised, and the hand-holding was disrupted by the arrival of the coffee and Bloody Mary's. With shaking hands, Carlos raised the coffee to his lips and took a sip and Mark took the opportunity to wipe his hands on the napkin, trying to remove the damp feeling implanted by Carlos. This was going nowhere, and any hope of driving the latest Jaguar or smoking some great cigars was gone. Mark accepted that. But surely Carlos could still enjoy a good sex conversation. You know, when I come into town, I still see our favorite psychologist, Carlos looked puzzled and then seemed to get the reference, but it didn't produce a smile. 
I never cared for her. There was something always so cold about her. But her partner, that lovely girl with the Shakespearean name, Viola, she was sweet. She married some guy with a son and left town. She had the right idea. And then Carlos looked at Mark sternly. There's nothing more important than family, Mark. Honor them. Though Carlos was a father figure of sorts, Mark had never received a lecture. Carlos continued, You need to give up these ways, Mark. I wasted years, precious years of my wife's and Lola's life, working and sleeping with whores. And now I can never get those back, and I don't even have Lola. Carlos buried his face in the napkin again, but he came up for air and started again. Really, I blame myself for introducing you to those wicked ways. Do you believe in karma or even God, Mark? Well, I do, and I'm being punished for the way I live. I had stopped and gone to confession a week before the accident, but it wasn't enough for God. It's my fault. Mark made another attempt at conversation as he gulped his Bloody Mary. How's your son doing? With that, the old Carlos was back fire and brimstone. He held up a commanding hand, and Mark felt hope. The day could be salvaged. He couldn't imagine what could elicit such a response, but he didn't care. He was thrilled to see his old friend. We do not speak of him. He is dead to me. Mariposa. Faggot. I will not have one of those in my home, let alone my family. He was nothing like my sainted Lola. He crossed himself, and as Mark looked at him beyond Carlos's head, he could see the waiter with their food. Mark had never been so grateful to see Eggs Benedict in his life, because with his mouth full of food, Carlos would shut up. The fag reference barely registered on Mark's Richter scale. What was it to him if Carlos didn't like gay people? He wasn't crazy about them himself and forbade Julia's cousin to ever be alone with his children. Mark watched Carlos devour the food like a homeless person. It reminded him of his father the way he used to eat when he came home from the factory, grunts and hunched shoulders. When Carlos swabbed the plate with the bread, Mark looked away. He hoped never to be reminded of his father again. Mark excused himself and told Carlos he was going to the men's room. He walked up to the hostess desk and told her to tell the old man at the table that he'd had to leave. He gave her his American Express card number and told her to order him a car to take him home. He grabbed his bag from the co-check and hailed a cab to the Guggenheim. Viola. The walk through the village on the way to Tommy's felt like a victory lap to Viola. With Kimberly and Julian, she had literally danced on the street, joining a group blaring a radio. The group of young men had all stared at Julian. Viola had never seen Julian so happy and Kimberly so carefree. When Kimberly realized, in all the excitement, she'd forgotten to set the alarm at the townhouse, she even dismissed that and they continued on to Tommy's, riding their wave of excitement. Viola had butterflies standing, waiting for Tommy to answer the door. Kimberly knew the door was unlocked, but continued to ring the bell and hold the door if anyone tried to open it, and then she'd let go. Viola didn't know what to expect, but it didn't matter what preconceived notion she'd had. Apart from her mother, she couldn't imagine a better homecoming than Tommy's face, 
which went from shock to joy to tears within a two-second window, and then she was enveloped in his arms, and she could feel when he grabbed Julian and Kimberly. You're home. You've come home. Vi's home. He kept saying it, and the chaos that ensued was joyous. She was at the center of a whirlwind of intention and starved for so long she gulped in it. When the hug ended, he grabbed her hand and Julian's and walked them around, showing them off. Vi and Julian are home. It was a statement, a fact. It was all that was said, and there was a universal sense of relief and joy. Viola and Julian were kissed, hugged, and caressed. Viola felt grateful for everyone's unconditional acceptance of Julian. Settled on the couch with champagne and food, she sat between Tommy and Kimberly. Julian stood on the balcony watching the parade. She knew he was riveted. Tommy kept stroking her neck, massaging it. Honey, I can feel those ten years and the knots in your shoulders. We're going to have to do a lot of work on you. All Viola could do was laugh. It felt good that someone wanted to look after her. Even Kimberly offered her another glass of champagne. As she took Viola's glass, Tommy joked. Are you feeling okay? The last time you got anything for anybody who wasn't paying you. Shut up. I'm a caregiver. Tell him why. I hugged you when you were crying last night. Well, let me see it in action. Scoot along. Tommy waited until she was out of earshot. You cried? Vi, baby, if we're going to need a month alone to talk. And we will. But I need to know what's going on with Kimmy. Tommy, she touched her fucking face. And the dreams are back. I told you to look after her when I left. What the hell's going on? Okay, I don't blame you about the dreams. She's doing that to herself. And I'm sure Marion's not helping. Honey, her mother is out of control. She now makes the Johnny call about once a month. I'm sure that's why the dreams are back. I hope with you home it will help. You know you had a supporting role in them. I did? Oh, yeah. And don't play innocent. You must have known that you left a trail of devastation when you left. Fine, we were depressed for years. And then when Miss Jean... Tommy stopped himself and lowered his head. Tommy, it's okay. Of course I know. Now, I... I went to the house and let myself in. I knew the minute the door didn't creak that... He never told me. I figured as much. I knew it had become a nightmare. And sometimes if we'd been drinking, we'd all talk about driving down there and kidnapping you. It was funny, though. Miss Jean would just shake her head and say, You can't make anyone do what they don't want. She knows her way home. She'll come when she's ready. It all became too much, and Viola began to sweat with the thought of her mother, waiting and knowing... Her breathing became heavier. She needed to escape. She looked at Tommy wildly, trying to speak, but she couldn't. Her eyes burned from the tears that were just on the edge, and her throat began to fill. Tommy grabbed her hand and dragged her into the bedroom. Kimberly, just arriving with the champagne, followed. The minute the door shut, Viola collapsed with huge animal sounds that shredded her insides. 
Tommy caught her and held her on the ground as she curled up. Her fists were clenched, and she beat the air and then ground, flailing. She was aware of Kimberly and Tommy trying to comfort and soothe her, but they seemed very far away from the place she was. She lost track of time in that place she assumed was hell. She was tormented and could hear her husband's voice and her mother's and her own animal sounds. Her throat was raw. Eventually, the sounds turned to sobs, the sobbing to a whimper. And then she was spent and laid still on the floor, her head in Tommy's lap as he patted her forehead with a damp cloth. And Kimberly held her hands. She stared ahead but saw nothing. Eventually, the room came into focus, and she realized her mouth was dry and felt disgusting. She sat up, disengaging herself from Tommy and Kimberly. Do you have a spare toothbrush? I need to brush my teeth. Of course. Tommy and Kimberly helped her up and gingerly led her to the bathroom. Inseparable, they sat on the edge of the tub as she brushed her teeth. Her makeup was gone, but she didn't care. She never wore much anyway these days. Back there, she felt invisible, and not wearing makeup just supported that feeling. She studied her face in the mirror. She supposed she'd get back into makeup and life here, now with Julian. Julian! She had forgotten about Julian! How long have I been in here? Where's Julian? Kimberly answered her. I checked on him. He's okay. I told him you were catching up with some old friends talking in the bedroom. He's still on the balcony watching the parade. I think he's talking to some people. People? More like pariahs, no doubt. I know how gay men are, and he's young, fresh meat. Tommy chuckled a little and patted Viola's hand. Relax, Mama Bear. I told Jerry to keep an eye on him. He's fine. Last report I had, he was speaking to a young man, I think his name is Xavier. He's a law student working at Jerry's firm. Viola relaxed. Anybody still smoke? I'm dying for a cigarette. Tommy and Kimberly laughed. (laughs) Well, officially, we both quit. Because Jerry was all over his ass and Tommy here roped me into quitting with him. But I keep a pack hidden under the sink in the kitchen for desperate times. When Jerry's out of town and Kimmy and I get drunk. Viola threw herself at her two best friends. This was joy. To be in their presence. To be free again. They understood and held the embrace. Tommy broke away first and wiped his eyes. Okay. You two go out for a smoke, and I'll get back to being a host. I'll keep an eye on Julian. Just don't let Jerry see you get the smokes, Kimmy. If I can distract him, I'll lift your shirt or something. Pretend it's the old days, and you're in the parade, being carried by six buff boys in angel's wings and G-strings. Why would he care about my boobs, or boobs at all? And I haven't officially met him. Viola had forgotten that Tommy always had assumed everyone knew everyone. Oh, really? My bad. He dated a lot of black women before coming out of the closet. I thought it might be nostalgic for him. Henry. Henry.
Henry had navigated the streets well and found himself on 11th Street, passing the townhouse. It took an additional 25 minutes to find parking, but finally somebody pulled out of a coveted spot. His hatred of New York was revived by the haughty look of the departing driver. He sat and watched the townhouse for an hour. No one came or left so they were either holed up inside or out. He figured Viola would want to show Julian around, so they must be out. He got out the car, put the rifle in a bag, hoping that in a bag its shape would be camouflaged. He casually walked to the house and looked like a guest. Men came in and out of this place. He wasn't going to draw attention. He looked up and saw the brass sign on the building. Kimberly Simon, Psychotherapy. He snorted, pretentious bitch, and darted down the stairs to the understairs entrance. He felt for the key above the light. There was nothing there. He felt along the door frame and found nothing. He'd have to pick the lock. Damn! He kicked the wall, but his boot didn't sound right hitting the stone. He knelt down and felt around and found a loose stone in the wall. But damn, it was hard to get out. No doubt easier for a woman's hand. He dug in his bag and found a screwdriver. Within moments, he was holding the key in his hand. He put the key in the lock, but stopped suddenly. Through the window and the door, he could see an alarm system keypad. Damn, now what? He studied it. System ready, it said. He paused. He didn't have a lot of experience with alarms. Where'd he seen one? Ah, that rich guy with the vintage Cadillacs he'd worked on. System ready meant the alarm was ready, but not on, so someone must be inside. He let himself in quietly, then returned the key to its hiding place. Henry had crept all the way through the townhouse, stopping to listen for voices every few steps. He'd gone up the back stairs, arriving at the second floor, with no indication that anyone was in the house, despite what the alarm indicated. He found a bedroom that was empty. It looked like a hotel room with the perfectly made bed. He shut the door quietly and figured until he heard voices, he'd hang out in the room. He took his gun out the bag and set it on the bed. Then seeing what he knew to be a liquor cabinet, he poured himself a drink. The liquor felt warm and the burn of a caress going down his throat. He felt himself lose some of the tension that had come with moving through the house on alert. He poured himself another just hoping to release more tension. But the second drink brought back memories of happy times with Viola. Had they ever been in this room? He felt melancholy begin to put an arm on his shoulder, and he gulped more bourbon. Melancholy's arm seemed to strengthen its hold. He tried to shrug it off and turned his head only to look into the face of his father. He rubbed his eyes vigorously, hoping the ghost would go away. You didn't think I'd let you take care of this business without me, did you? For you to fuck it up? Nah, I knew you needed me. So you got a plan? Next time on Ovid's Flea. He knew his secrets would be safe with her, so he decided to tell her everything. She got more than she bargained for. The whole story had made her somewhat sick to her stomach. His whining was like pure theater to me. Albert's Flea is voiced by Patrick Brewis, Anita Charlesier, Pat Jones, Dan Johnson, Harry Wetzel, 
Reed Winfrey and C.N. Yates. This is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Flea was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors as well as those through Kickstarter. The music is licensed through Grey Bliss Music or is a property of Arden Park Productions. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios and Anya Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.